Okay, I think it's going. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning. Uh, Casey took us through the end of uh, Romans chapter 2 last time. Uh, and that was last month. And then, you know, we had a, a week there before that that we had off. And then we had an open platform. Uh, but we're going to be starting in on the beginning. I'm doing the first uh, 18 verses in Romans chapter 3. And uh, yeah, some beautiful songs this morning. I do, I do love that song. I was uh, remarking that when you sing the verse, I'm like, this is really low. I like this because it's in my register, like a lower register. And I'm like, I wonder why they wrote this so low because I similarly kind of forgot the song. And then, boom, you go to the chorus and it's like, uh, uh, it's like where's, where's, my, where's my water? And I'm like... <laughs> It's like one of those ones after the first verse. I'm like, you got to do this two more times. Like, I gotta, <laughs> I'm not going to borrow some of Mark's air back there to survive the, the next couple of choruses. But, but no, it is a, it's a beautiful song. I mean, it, it, really, it really hits hard. You can imagine singing like something like that with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of saints in heaven. I mean, I'm sure the music will blow us away even more, but I mean... Hearing a song sung like that, that powerful with a lot of people, that would be a, a really neat thing to do. So um, let's uh, open in a, what, another word of prayer here, and then I'll read through uh, Romans 3, 1 to 18, and then we'll, we'll go through it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Uh, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of salvation freely given to us and only wrought through his precious blood shed for us on the cross as we broke the bread and we took the cup this morning in remembrance of what he did for us and what you did for us, Father, not only in sending your son to live a perfect, sinless, spotless life here on earth, but then to conversely be made sin for us, the weight of the sin of the entire world without time laid on him. And Father, you turning your face away from him because of that sin. We just thank you so much, Father, for what that means for us. We thank you that it wasn't just a sad story, but he's now risen at your right hand, preparing a place, a conqueror, and waiting for us, as excited as we are, maybe even more, to be there with him forever because of his love. We thank you, Father, for your word and the availability of it to us. Pray that you would just have the words, only that you would have to be heard, uh, spoken this morning and that you would bless the, the reading and the hearing of your word to our hearts. We just praise you and thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 3, 1 through 18. <clears throat> reading in the, the ESV this morning. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then... How could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? 
Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Once again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. So this section, coming off the back of chapter 2, and what we talked about in kind of the middle and end of chapter 2, uh, this is kind of all like the opposite side of, of the coin. Um, in chapter 2, we were talking about, um, you know, how the Jews rely just on the fact of their, their pedigree. They boast in God, uh, but they do not teach themselves to do what is right. And this, you know, is a blanket statement in some cases, but there's, there's likely many exceptions. Um, but they took the fact that they were given the law to mean that they were kind of locked in, so to speak, uh, or good to go. Circumcision was put up on a pedestal instead of being looked at for what it really was, uh, the picture that represents keeping the law um, and, and their place with the Lord. In this case, the reciprocal question to be observed is, you know, kind of putting this in, in uh, colloquialisms or layman's terms, is there any advantage to being a circumcised Jew then? Is it all meaningless and for naught? Is kind of what's being asked there in that first verse. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? It was kind of interesting. I was reading uh, McDonald's commentary as I often do and he kind of, I don't know if he was saying that this is, this is like what could have happened, but he, he almost put it as if, the way he said it was like, at this point, a, a, a Jew stands up and starts to offer counter arguments, um, almost as if it was like a live scenario where somebody was offering, you know, so maybe it was kind of, that's how he was thinking about it. Uh, but I thought it was interesting because he kind of goes back and forth and you're going to see that here, uh, you may already have when I read it, but you get those questions from someone who might be in that camp of, you know, they're the religious Jews of the time and they're saying, okay, now you've, you've said all these things about how there's even some Gentiles that keep the law and in them doing so to them, that is circumcision and, and your, your circumcision to you, if you don't, is uncircumcision and all of this stuff that's basically putting down the Jews. So are you basically saying that all of this was for naught? There was no real point, you know, if we're all the same, then what's the point? And that's kind of being asked. And then an answer is given in a verse or two. And then another question is asked, almost like this person is like, okay, so you say that, like almost like a debate going back and forth. And, you know, again, whether or not that was the case or whether or not it was just, you know, Paul, I'm sure, has heard tons and tons of these arguments throughout the course of, of sharing the, the, the gospel and, and talking to the Jews. Um, and I think it's pretty interesting. We'll get to this kind of at the end, um, but the whole chapter is kind of, not in this same kind of call and response, but almost like I'm going to tell you one thing and then I'm going to go and I'm going to talk about, you know, the, the juxtaposing idea 
But then so that you don't go too far in that direction, I'm going to come back and retell you the first thing that I just told you. Um, so like Jews and Gentiles, we're all, we're all in the same boat here. Um, yeah, but what about Jews then? Is there any advantage? Yes. And he goes into all these things. But then it circles back and says, but are Jews any better? No. So it's like it's, it's back and forth. Um, and I think it's interesting because I think he knows his audience and so if you start to, even for a few verses, if you start to hear like, okay, well, the Jews do have all this good stuff. So then people are like, okay, so they, they do have a leg up on it. She's like, no, no. So, so you know, going back and forth and making sure that the, 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 the hearers of this, this, this message understand that um, what he's trying to get across clearly. Um, but again, we'll look at that a little bit more because I just, I just think it's kind of interesting just being... A speaker, you know, and also having done things, uh, even even at work, you know, talking to folks and 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 how how the audience can kind of latch on to certain things and kind of be taken down a road. You kind of bring everybody back, uh, especially you know, in, in a lot of cases, my conveyance of what I'm trying to say is not perfect. It doesn't come out right. Um, but in 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 verse one, that question is being asked. So, and and Paul does this a lot. Like you'll see this in a lot of his letters where he says, he asks like these rhetorical questions and then he answers them. By no means, may it never be. Um, you know, we'll look at that a little bit later as well. But um, Paul does say in verse two that being a circumcised Jew, one of God's chosen people is valuable. They were given the oracles of God. You don't have to turn, um, you know, and Casey and I do this a lot, but kind of a fire drill in terms of like, um, or a sword drill? What do we call it? Sword drill. Where you go to like, it could be a fire drill. Someone hit the fire. <laughs> ACA would not, or uh, not ACA, but the seventh day group would probably wouldn't appreciate that. Um, but I'm going to jump to a couple of different verses. So you could turn to them or you could just write down the references or just listen. Um, we are recording this, so uh, you can go listen to it on, on Spotify or wherever. But um, Deuteronomy 4, uh, the first eight verses say, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? So again, that's Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 8. What value then is there to being a Jew? There's one of your answers. Psalms 147, 19 and 20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation, they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Romans 9, 4 to 5. Not there yet, but we will get there. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, 
the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So, again, I mean, there's some pretty succinct answers to that question. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then another question. So it's like, I'm asking, uh, I got an answer. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. But what about this, you know, dig or this zinger that I got for you? Let's see if you got an answer for this one. Um, that being, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So some verses for that. Would God ever go back, again, looking at this kind of as a colloquialism? Because I, when I was reading this stuff, I had to read it a few times because I'm like, okay, did I understand that right? Like, what's actually being asked here? Um, you know, and looking at the commentaries just to make sure I had at least the right thought or uh, in, the, in the ballpark. Would God ever go back on his promises or be unfaithful to them because there were some among the Jews or children of Israel who were unfaithful? So does their, again, reading the text itself, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And then typical Paul fashion, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So again, verse three, um, thinking about the faithlessness or the unfaithfulness of the children of Israel. Romans ten twenty one says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Romans 9, six through eight, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, or I'm sorry, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not of the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And I think... Casey kind of touched on this a little bit in his messages about circumcision and about, um, you know, truly being called a Jew, or at least, you know, I think there's some different camps and thoughts in there, but um, the, the exhortation to live that way spiritually, that you might be counted as one in spirit, if not in the flesh, as they were so used to looking at only the flesh, only what was right there in front of them. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So again, even if God's word was counter to what every single person, every single human being on this earth was saying, God would still be right, and we would all be wrong. We would all be wrong, or in this case, if you look at the language there, we would all be lying or liars or incorrect. Um, Interesting little snippet from McDonald. I like the way he wrote it. Our sins only serve to confirm the truthfulness of God's words. And that kind of sets up the next verse because all of this, again, is following after probably a lot of the things 
that Paul had heard and had been confronted with uh, in terms of arguments from the religious leaders of the time, from Jews, from people who were like, yeah, well, again, what about this? So, um, yes. So, again, in verse, let me just see here. In verse 5, the way I wrote it out was, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, does that mean that God isn't in the right to punish us or mete out his wrath on us for that same unrighteousness? After all, our unrighteousness causes his glory to shine brighter. So again, looking at that in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So again, the way that I wrap my mind around that is if our unrighteousness, if the things that we do, not being righteous, serve to brighten and showcase the glory of God, showcase the righteousness of God, why does he punish it, punish us for it? And the thing that I wrote down is that, and, and these are my thoughts, please take them with a grain of salt here, but God doesn't make us sin. If he was the one making us sin so that his glory would shine brighter, he was forcing us to sin so that he could look better, then I don't think he would be in the right to punish us for that because it wasn't on us. So it's not that he's making us sin so that his glory shines more brightly or his righteousness is more set apart or called out. It's just that we do sin and it's a result of that. So when we do sin, his glory, our unrighteousness magnifies his righteousness because it is so much more different than what ours is. It's, it's perfect. It's glorious. So it's what happens as a result. He's not making us sin. So we are choosing to sin. And if you only look at that and stop it there and forget about the magnification of his glory part for a moment, we are choosing to sin and he is completely holy and well within his right to meet justice out on that or wrath out on that or on us for it. So again, I think when you look at some of these arguments, they sound potentially compelling at face value and you can get a lot of other people. I can almost hear the crowds like, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, I, I like the way you phrase that. But if you dig into it, he's not, he's not actually causing us to, to do anything. You know, he's not making us do it. If I were to, if I were to go to they're not here, and they wouldn't be because of Sunday school. But if I were to go to Mikey or Sammy and say, you know, hey, go, uh, go pinch your sister. Go pinch Rosie. And they go do it. And they're like, Dad, I don't really want to. I'm like, do it. And like, okay, I'll go do it. And they do it. And then I spank him for it or I punish him for it or I put him in his room for 10 minutes or something like that. Is that right? No, that's not right. That's not right of me to do it. But... In this case, again, it's not, it's not God doing that. We are, as we well know, and as we'll look at a little bit later, all in the same boat. We're going to look at that section there that talks about none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good. 
we don't need any help from God to do bad things. It's contrary to his nature. I mean, I read that verse before. Um, he cannot deny himself. God is perfectly righteous and glorious. So he wouldn't even do that stuff. Um, but again, it's, it's not that, you know, we can't, they're trying to twist the logic there and twist it in such a way that it makes God look bad for meeting out wrath against us if we do something that causes his glory to shine more brightly. When realistically, we chose to do that and we're being, you know, rightly punished if, we, if, we, if he does meet out wrath against us for that, uh, for what we did. So, and then also the follow-up thought there, how could ju- uh, God judge the world? So, how would he be fit to judge the world in another way of, of saying that? But if through my lie... God's truth abounds to his, <clears throat> excuse me, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why then am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And that's kind of where that ends. There's a hyphen there, at least in, in the ESV again. And then it says, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. So, it's not, you know, again, it's that kind of argument and answer. It's kind of that call and response. Excuse me, similar, similar thought here, or similar pattern here. But also Paul makes the note that some people even slanderously charge Paul and the Christians of the age as using that same argument, that you would continue to do evil, that good or righteousness might abound. And... You know, you don't have to look too much further in Romans to know Romans 6, how, how Paul really feels about that because he says it here, but he also again spells it out in Romans 6. What, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. I mean, you can't really get much more straightforward than that. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So it's a similar thought, but I guess a little bit different take on it. Why am I being counted as a sinner if my lies or my sins serve to showcase God's truth to his praise and to his glory? Like, why, why am I being looked at bad if ultimately the, the outcome is for his good? Would, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you just follow that logic and say, I should do more then, more evil, so that he can continue to look even better? Um, but again, it's not that he is making us do those things. The righteous economy of God's holiness and of God's law is that sin is unjust and much be, it must be punished and God is holy and just. So if you just look at that as that simple equation, as soon as our lies and our sins come about, that's it. They are punished. Those things are sinful and those things are evil and counter to God's nature and they are punished. The fact that 
God's glory is magnified because it's so set apart and so righteous and so holy. There's no logical tie that brings that back to say that he shouldn't punish us because of that. That is just what happens as a result. He's not making us do those things. We have chosen, again, we'll see it here in a bit. We have chosen to do those things, to live that way, to to act in a sinful way. And the truth of the matter is that when we do that, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't lessen God's righteousness, but it serves to magnify it. So Paul also finishes up by saying, the people that slanderously charge Christians, you know, whether they realize it or not, maybe Satan certainly does, in an effort to tarnish their testimony, slanderously charges Christians by telling others that that's the message that they would showcase or that's the message that they would tell others. Those people deserve their condemnation because they are trying to taint or pervert the message uh, of, of Christ and that is being shared by Paul and the other Christians of the age. Those people well and fully deserve their condemnation or their condemnation is just, uh, as it says again in my translation. So here again, as we look at um, kind of what I touched on at the beginning, so the, a little bit of the back and forth as we think about the very beginning of Romans where he's saying, you know, for all have sinned and we're all in the same boat. And then, you know, a little bit of, you know, kind of specifically talking about the Jews and saying, you know, you're, you're very proud of your pedigree and of your circumcision and of your heritage. And you would, you would use that. I think when I covered that portion or that passage, there's even verses that are indicative of the fact that they would, they would charge money for their services. They would charge money to, to provide a benediction or to share a message. Again, just resting on the fact that, hey, but we're descendants of Abraham. You're going to find another qualified, bona fide. They got like a certificate up on their wall or something. Um, and, and that was it to them. That was, that was their, their pride in a nutshell. And I think you see that all throughout the New Testament that when, when the humble, righteous, perfect, sinless Lord Jesus Christ enters into the world and, and walks his walk through the world and people stop looking at them for a bit and start looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, they become furious because they've enjoyed a lifestyle where they were, like you might see in the Catholic Church, the priests are the only ones who can truly interpret the word of God. You can read it, but I, I wouldn't try too hard because you, you can't really do it. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human beings, so I'm pretty sure anyone can interpret it um, you know, they can certainly, between them and the Lord, give it, give it their effort. But so those types of things for the priest to say, yes, but we have these qualifications. We have this pedigree. We have this ancestry. We're circumcised. And they used that to kind of lord over others. And, you know, again, for their own, um, for their own gain, whether it's monetary, whether it's power, um, just the feeling, the dopamine hit that probably comes with everybody's looking at me, everybody's listening to me, instead of it being a service for others. You know, that's why, again, I mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ coming in humility um, 
I had a thought. It's not quite related to this section, but um, the the if you follow the thought all the way to the very end, you hear it before the cross. We will not have this man to reign over us. This carpenter, this person. If the Lord Jesus Christ came back looking like he looked in Revelation and, and just flattened everybody and said, I'm the son of God, I think they would have been like, yeah, we want that guy. Like, okay, that's awesome. But he didn't do that. So they probably still wouldn't have loved it because they want everybody to look at them. But in that case, there's no denying it. There's no denying it if he were to just come and say, I am, I am. And just everybody is just flattened. But he didn't do that. He came in humility. So not only could they say, I hate this guy because they're looking at him and not me anymore. Everybody used to come to me and I was the guy and I got money and recognition and fame and all of that stuff from that. But now they're coming to him. But they could at this point say, Let's do what we're going to do with this guy because he didn't come and just take over in power what the people wanted to see, a king reigning in, in, in worldly power and honor and what they would look at as majesty in the, you know, through the lens of the world. So, and, and obviously God knew that. That was part of his plan. He knew that when Christ went to the earth and, and, and showcased by the way that he lived, the stuff that we're talking about here, his righteousness was so apparent because it was so counter to the sinfulness that they were purveying and they couldn't stand it, but ultimately that they would, that they would want to kill him and that he would set aside his power to allow that to happen. But again, looking at the way that this is structured and the way that Paul talks about this in setting everyone at the same level, but then answering to the Jews who would immediately say, well, wait a minute, but like, then what's the whole point? Why, why, why would we even be God's chosen people? And then speaking to that for a time, and then in verse nine, making sure that it's still understood though, that even though I said that there are some benefits to being a Jew, that you know, are we better off? Again, in the grand economy of God's righteousness so are you, are you saying that we're better off? Like, because again, that's what they want. That's what they wanted to make sure was understood or heard, not really necessarily understood, maybe falsely understood. Um, but he says, no, not at all in verse nine. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged, like I talked about in chapter one, there was chapters in the letter or whatever, but as aforementioned, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. You know, he makes the, the juxtaposition of like some being under the law and some not, but all are under sin. And then here again is that section that I mentioned we were gonna get to in verse 10. As it is written, and what I did was um, in my notes, I uh, underlined, you know, bolded, whatever, italicized, called out these words that I emphasized, I think, a little bit when I read the passage, but I'm going to do it again here. Um, the words that encapsulate who he's talking about and who he's not talking about. So, none is righteous, no, not one. So, like the Jew that would say, yeah, but 
Nope, that's it. That's end of story, end of argument. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So that's established now in verses 10 through 12 there. In 13, the language shifts a little bit, and he says there and they, but the, the subject of the there and the they have already been established. It's everyone. It's all. So their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before, your, before their eyes. So that section to me, just kind of bringing it back around, for any who might have been reading the letter, who have heard it, or you know, us even reading it today, the, 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 there's an exhortation that I'm going to get to at the end here in a bit, but um, it's going it's gonna, to it's gonna tie into that section. Um, and I mean, I might, I might be there right now, but I just wanted to make sure. So not Jews, not Gentiles or Greeks, or any specific, specific people group or sect or region or anything is accepted in this section not accepted, accepted, like everyone is included here. All of humanity without time. The only, only person, and I say person loosely, is the Lord Jesus Christ who would fall outside of this passage, this condemnation. Everyone else, everyone else without exception. So the exhortation for us, whether you're a Jew, whether you're not, that's not what I was really focusing on here at the end. That's the crux of this chapter, yes, and of what Paul was trying to talk about to the Greeks and then to the Jews and then, you know, making sure that it's understood that, yes, there's a benefit, but it's not when you get back to the, the important piece of the I keep calling it the economy, but righteousness, you know, spiritual righteousness, then it's not like you're, you're better off um, in any way as a Jew. But taking a step back from ancestry or pedigree or any of that stuff, thinking of us today as Christians, let's keep a version of this in mind as we go forward from here throughout our day to day. And that version is like that of the Jews. Let's make sure that we don't fall into the same traps and temptations that the Jews of the time did. And what I mean by that is don't let Satan put pride in our hearts because, we, because we've accepted the free gift of salvation. It probably sounds even weirder when I say it like that because it's pretty obvious when you hear it said that we've accepted the free gift of salvation that it was given to us. We didn't do anything. We just accepted it. You could say it as 
because we're part of the family of God, because we're saved and heaven bound. But again, the whole reason for that is not because we kept a specific law or we did a certain thing a certain way or because we go to church or read our Bibles and, or, or speak to the Lord when we pray to him. So let's make sure that we realize that we're worms the same as everyone else on the face of the planet. Go back to those verses in 10 through 18. No one, not one, none, all. So understanding that, let's share the love of Christ and his saving knowledge to everyone around us because they're the same as us. We're not saying, you know, I'm, I'm up here now. Like, I, I, I made it. I'm, I'm better. Here's my pedigree. Here's my certificate. Here's my qualifications. Let me, let me come down to your level and, and show you what you're doing wrong. And, and you know, you should, you should read about this stuff. So more the way that the Lord Jesus Christ did it in humility, serving those people, loving them, knowing that, we talked about it this morning in the breaking of bread, that God loved us. If, if anyone had the right to kind of do the little facetious skit that I just made up there, it would have been God because he is perfectly righteous and we chose the sinful path. And instead of coming down and just blasting that all away and saying, nah, this was, this was a mistake, this was wrong, he had mercy on us and loved us and gave us his only son whom he loves, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we could be saved. Read, read John 17 and if you get through it without crying, you'll have, my, um, you'll have my stamp of approval. I can't read John chapter 17 without crying, so I won't put you through that now. But that is that the love which I had for them, or the love which you had for me may be in them and I in them. And all of those things that you can read in that, in that, that, that chapter there. That you and I... And all of us would be in heaven with him where he is. Let's share that love to those around us in, in humility and, and in love. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for what we can read in Romans. We thank you for what we can learn and draw out from the passages. We thank you, Father, that we can take from it exhortations that can apply to us. We pray that you would cause our, our hubris and our pride to melt away in, in anything, not even necessarily just the fact that we're, we're Christians, but certainly to that extent that we wouldn't, like the Jews in Paul's time, become proud of where we are, realizing that we are all, together with the rest of humanity, anyone who we would compare to and say, well, I've never done those things or there's no way I would ever do something that bad and realizing that we've sinned in, in a part and therefore the whole and are just the same as those people. Give us the grace and the boldness to share the gospel to everyone around us, Father, and to do so in humility 
and love and service. We thank you, Father, for loving us in that same way and not condemning us, but sending your only son to take our place. We thank you, Father, for what that means for us, and we would praise you and thank you for all these things in the precious and holy name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.